Hi, this is Toby Miller. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. And my guest today is... Kim Wilkins. Kim, welcome. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you, Toby? I'm all right. Now, the rumour is you're fighting off a cough. Yeah, it's a long going, uh, ongoing cough. Uh, I think it's been about a month. Um, yeah, so hopefully it won't interrupt us too much. If it happens, it happens. Yeah. But apart from your cough and the rest of your, as it were, private life, mm. these distinctions are obviously blurry. What's been on your mind recently? What are you thinking about? What are you working on? What, what's mattering to you, as it were? Well, a lot of things are mattering to me, I guess, and they're all intersected and intertwined. I would say at the moment my two major things that I've been thinking about one is a, a monograph that I'm thinking about because it is due uh, reasonably soon. No on, pressure. No pressure. <laughs> uh, slight pressure. Just slight pressure. Um, <laughs> on what I would call a set of aesthetic practices, uh, gentrification aesthetics in mainstream film and television. And the other, uh, a, a slightly different project uh, done together with a, a wonderful colleague, uh, Wyatt Moss Wellington from the University of New England in Australia, on the motif of body swapping in film and television, which is really fun. Tom Hanks? Oh, not specifically on Tom Hanks, but I mean, are you thinking of Big? Did he make a film? Yes, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Yes, of course, that's within like the remit. What I'm thinking of specifically, what I'm working on is Freaky Friday because I absolutely love the Jodie Foster version. Um, The other ones, I'm not sure, but they are making a new one. And I do think that at the moment there are a lot of body swap uh, style things. Everything seems to involve this in some way or another, um, or at least all of the festival announcements that I see say, and there's a body swap film. And I do think this is uh, not um, not unusual given what is happening, I think, culturally at the moment in terms of uh, notions of empathy, uh, uh, authenticity, on, and, and things like this. So that, that's been on my mind a lot. Mm. And the gentrification one, hmm. tell me how you're approaching that, because that's a bit more conceptual in the sense mm-hmm. that it's not hard to find films and television shows that quite clearly yeah. are about some kind of replication or transposition or transmogrification. Mm-hmm. But it's got to be a bit tougher to locate film and television on gentrification, or have I got that wrong? Well, no, you haven't got that wrong. I think that this is part of the reason that I'm finding this uh, project quite challenging, and, and it has morphed a lot over time as well. So when I first came to this project, I was thinking exactly in those terms, right? Like, what is the intersection, uh, I guess, in almost material terms of these things? Like, what's the role of film and television in the process of gentrification? Uh, how does it depict this? But as time went on, I mean, there's, there are a lot of really great studies um, that talk about these narratives of gentrification. Uh, they tend to be American, overwhelmingly. Um, and there's been an uptick in them as well. I don't know, the, the show Gentrified or um, The New Candyman, they're, they're explicitly about this problem. But I guess what I, I became more interested in was whether or not there could be sort of a, a, a textual practice that kind of speaks to uh, gentrification imperatives. Because while there are all of these um, fantastic studies, I'm thinking of like Elizabeth Patton did one on um, Portlandia and the way that that show is fed into and, and informed gentrifying practices. Or, yeah, or um, Noelle Griffiths did this fantastic chapter on what she's calling the gentrific- gentrifier's gaze in American productions from The Landlord, that fantastic Hal Ashby film, on um, and I guess while I find these narratives really interesting, I, it wasn't really the narrative itself that I thought would be where my work would be at. So I, I started with this idea of um, of genre. So uh, Johan Andersen wrote this fantastic essay on the way that the rom-com gentrifies or is a, a genre of gentrification uh, or the gentrified city. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it. Notting Hill. Well, yeah, and then, I mean, and Amelie as well. I don't know if you remember all those debates sure, about sure. how it literally they went in and digitally tidied up that city so that it could feasibly be conceived of as romantic or as like somewhere where you could have this sort of 
playground of courtship. And it makes sense, right? For In order, for instance, for a meet-cute to happen, you need to have a certain understanding, a set of expectations coming from your audience, you know, that, that sort of contract mm-hmm. that um, says that this is going to be safe, that this is all going to be fine. So I always use this with my students, right? When you have a situation, say, if I just describe uh, a man and a woman, they're walking along, they've got their coffees, it's early morning, they bash into each other, and he looks really angry at her. Um, I'm like, well, what's going to happen next? And overwhelmingly, my students always say, are they going to fall in love? I'm like, why? If he's angry, why? And they're like, oh, because they they, they read these audio, these sort of cues, these generic cues, and then map that on to a situation where a, a man's visible anger at a woman on some urban street, in spite of what we know about, like, you know, um, problems with gendered violence, whatever, that this is going to be something you can tell your grandkids later is a really nice story because they have to fall in love. And then when I, I kind of drill down on that and I'm like, well, what, what, which city are we in? They usually say New York. So there is this sort of set of, um, of coordinates that have or that are textual, right? That are already there that inform the way that I think that we see cities, that we understand urban space and who and, and who we expect to occupy them. So I think, so yeah, so it started with genre and, and it kind of built from there. Wow. Okay. Great. Gosh. So these are two massive and quite distinct tasks that you've mentioned, Mm -hmm. the gentrification and the swapping. Yeah. Do you, do you find that you're spending in a mythic week, three days a week on one and two on another, or you can't do anything on one for a month and then you go to the, and then you return to it or how does that work? Well, at the moment, and thanks so much to my wonderful colleague Wyatt. I'm I'm really in the gentrification book, and the other one is also because it's not um we have it's an edited collection, and I think that's a good thing with something like body swaps because um body swapping in in film and television operates quite differently in different parts of the world. So I'm really interested in in sort of Freak Friday, those sorts of texts that when anyone asks me what's a body swap film, I'm like Freak Friday, and everyone kind of knows what I'm talking about, but. <laughs> Um, it's huge in Asian cinema. Absolutely massive. I don't know if you know of the Miss Granny franchise. No. Oh, so this was a film that's a um, South Korean film that where a woman who's 70 kind of goes into her own body at the age of 20. And, you know, hilarity therefore and ensues and, and all those other things. But it's been remade so many times all across Asia and it's massive. Um, and then we had another contributor who pointed out that the ramifications or the implications of body swapping really depended culturally on whether uh, reincarnation was a generally held belief. Mm -hmm. In in the American version, everyone wants to get back into their own bodies desperately sort of thing, but it's not necessarily the case in other places. So because that's an edited collection, there is some sort of um, ways of delaying, I would say, my own involvement. um, And and wait until as chapters come in, there's yeah. wait and see mm-hmm. how they live together. There's that, yeah. So and on. also because um, I think that we also have lives, right, outside of academia, mm-hmm. um, hopefully. Uh, and because, you know, Wyatt and I know each other very well, we did our PhDs together with the same supervisors, we kind of are very good at knowing who has what going on and sort of dividing up who who's taking the reins at this particular moment in time. And I'm really grateful that, in spite of um, things that are happening in his world, he's given me the space at the moment to really concentrate on this, um, which I on this book because I, I I do want to finish it by the end of the year. Yes. I, I will uh, be stepping into a new role in in January, which will not have the uh, research. Well, it will still have a lot of research time, but not quite the lovely breakdown that I currently have so, so you'll, be, you'll be doing more teaching and, and administration oh, yeah yeah exactly um mm-hmm. so yeah, at the moment I'm on uh for, for the next month I'm still on a postdoc um which is a research postdoc uh so I do have a lot of, of of time to write at the moment and I do want to really you know take advantage of that while I have it mm, sure sure and I guess the word gentrification calls mm-hmm. up evil, naughtiness, badness. Mm-hmm. 
But when you think about it in the context of some of the arguments about new urbanism, or you think about the re- renovation, restoration of areas, is it all bad if you can still have mixed class housing, mixed race yeah. housing, and so on? I mean, do you have a view on this? I do. I mean, I, I, I want to emphasize, though, that I'm not an urban scholar and people so I can read this stuff and I can form my own opinions but I don't want to speak as an expert on gentrification itself that aside yes of course I have opinions on on this um I don't I, I think that there's a difference right gentrification by definition involves displacement so yes that is always bad to me I, I can't think of a way where that would not be bad but I don't think that all forms of say, renovation or renewal are that. But once they become gentrification, they must be. If people on on the basis of class um, are being moved along to other places, put out of view. Um, Although, of course, it's really difficult to, when you start thinking about things like mixed communities, which I think in principle, absolutely, this is a good thing. Of course, we want the the broadest sort of demographics of any... of society in any and every space that exists. But in practice, this seems quite odd. And because the, those sorts of ideas of mixed uh, communities tend, tended um, to be based on bringing people, people of higher socioeconomic backgrounds into lower areas. And the idea, traditionally at least, I think that this is slightly moved on, was that everyone would benefit from this, which... I find like an odd formulation because why? Why why is your neighborhood now better because someone richer lives next door? And I think in practice, they also found that um, the the opposite isn't really happening. They don't come and put people who are uh, so so poorer people into wealthier neighborhoods. It doesn't seem to be a problem to have sort of urban blocks made up of wealthy people. That isn't considered to be a social issue. The other way around it is. And the same when it's done on sort of ethnic basis as well. All of a sudden it's a problem ethnic if if you have an ethnic group that isn't white, for instance, in a predominantly white society. Why is that a problem when you you can comfortably have a neighbourhood that's solely white? Um, And the other thing that happens, I think, is this, and I think it's important, is that it kind of devalues cultural worth. Like people who do like to speak to people of their own cultural background, why is that a problem? And so in terms of how this is thematized in the texts you're analyzing, what have you found? Are there general tendencies? Are there surprises? Are there good things? Are there critical eye, critical views? Well, I guess on that particular issue, I have a chapter that um, I'm still developing, I must say, on the ways in which organized crime is 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 shot in 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 television series and that my case study there was um four blocks the german series um and what that tends to do is like what they call these social tectonics so the idea that even though you have um a diverse array of of, of backgrounds in a particular area they seem to be they don't interact like they're, they're parallel societies so they're, they're kind of like these tectonic plates that just Kind of so, even though they inhabit the same physical spaces, the ways in which those spaces imagined, conceived, constructed, um, are formulated through, through class, through background, and all these sorts of things. And I think that's really obvious in like a genre like the organized crime genre, which, which kind of imagines the world where sort of civilians, if we're going to call it, don't exist. But the way that these things, um, are framed from, from the perspective, it, it, it assumes a middle-class viewer, right? So it's supposed to be tantalizing. It's supposed to be enticing, but it can, it's supposed to be a place that we wouldn't actually go. We wouldn't touch. So it has a sort of touristic element to the, the way that those are things are viewed. But we are always given a guide, I think, in these series. So uh, usually uh, someone in that series, it's a guy called Tony who holds the same, I mean, Tony. Yeah, of course, um, who holds the same sort of values as family man. He just wants to do right by his family. And because there is that sort of common ground, that becomes a way of nav- navigating a space that I think that is presented as somewhere we would like to get in, 
and, and make up, making our own uh, sort of way, but we can't. And that's the tension, I think, in, in a series like that. Um, so I do think it comes back to a matter of genre and, and, and what do, what do we expect to find and who do we expect to find and what do we expect that to look like? Whether or not that actually maps onto the reality is, is a, a completely separate issue. Mm-hmm. But in terms of a commonly held imaginary, I think that that's where I'm at in terms of thinking about a gentrification aesthetic. It's the looking at something and imagining what you, what, what it would be. Well, that's fascinating. Now, just changing tack for a moment, if I could, you're in Oslo at the moment, I'm assuming, and you live in Norway, and you're about to move in a matter of four weeks from being a research postdoctoral fellow, (laughs) I guess that word's still used, to being a professor. Yeah. Is that something, apart from the additional responsibilities that you look forward to? Does it feel like some kind of change of status and security and whatnot? Or how do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. A change of security. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I've, I've been very fortunate um, to have come to Oslo, I feel. Uh, so I came as part of this, they, they were creating a whole new um, MA program and research project called Screen Cultures. And I, I came in on that project as a as a postdoc and the postdoc was four years which is quite substantial I think usually they're not that long of the ones I at least I found in my search and I was coming from Sydney and at the time I had a, a small baby um so it was a, it was quite a move and then so we've been here for for this amount of time um and now with this this new position I I get to stay and I I I no longer have to worry so much uh, about uh, the next contract, which I think is a situation in academia that is very rare, um, uh, increasingly rare. With and I'm, I'm extremely grateful for this. Oh, great, great, great! And so, what were you doing in Sydney? You were doing a doctorate, I guess. A doctorate, I guess. Well, I'm from Sydney, so I did my undergraduate at the University of Sydney in literature. Um, with some with some art history smattered through, um, and then I did a um, honors, which I I'm understanding is not something that happens very many other places in the world. But basically, that one um, research year with a, a thesis, sort of like a master's, but not a master's. And from there, I went off to Berlin just to escape. And you know, people from Australia either go to London or Berlin. I chose Berlin. Um, uh, and while I was there, I decided I'd like to continue studying. So I went back and did my PhD at, at the University of Sydney, during which time I think, yeah, we all take on a lot of teaching, casual teaching during the PhD to sort mm. of get by. Um, and I continued that after I'd finished uh, for a few years and while I was completing research projects and, and applying for an astounding amount of jobs, to be honest. And when you arrived in Norway, did you think of yourself differently? Did others appear to think of you differently? Because you weren't from there, you had an accent, you were a native speaker of English. You mentioned Berlin, and I happen to know from talking to you before, but you have German family background. You, You were an unusual object, as it were, or did you not feel that way? Because when I met you, which was this summer, you mm-hmm. told me that when you arrived in Norway, you were asked, and this apparently was the question everyone's asked, are you here for oil or love? Yeah, yeah. You already yeah. had love and you were not there for oil. Right? No, I'm not here for oil. Um, <laughs> no, I think, well, because I came into this department, I guess in a way, but Norwegians also are quite well travelled, right? So a lot of people had been to Australia, which I found quite surprising considering the distance between the two. Um, and on the language thing, I mean, a lot of people here speak arguably more understandable English than I do with the Australian odd terms and accent and everything like that. Um, but I think that there is a difference in perspective. And I think that there is a difference in a sort of academic perspective. I mean, I think the um, coming from Sydney, which is a huge university, right, and particularly the English department, which is massive, um, with a huge number of students, 
Um, and also this sort of getting by mentality, I think, where uh, everyone was taking on a lot of teaching and, and doing this and that and the other and trying to do bits of everything frantically all the time. When I came here, it was kind of like breathing. Um, there was space space to think, I think, which is, is uh, very nice. Um, and it took a bit of adjusting. The other thing was, I guess, I was coming out of um, an environment that had a lot of film studies, a lot of English literature or literature in general inflected film studies into a, a media and communications department. And that has its own differences, right? Um, so there are there are a few of us who do film in this department and television, but it's it's of a different nature, I would say. So is it less textual? Is it more institutional or audience? Yeah, there's a lot of that, yeah. Um, I think also just film studies has always been kind of scattered across different disciplines and you find it popping up in, in various places, sort of in gender mm-hmm. studies and, I mean, in everywhere. Sure. But it has its own thing. I mean, there's also a thing in Sydney as well. As I was going through, I mean, I didn't even know I had a degree in film studies. <laughs> used to, I, it, came like, it used to be this thing where it would say, like, you, you're you're about to graduate. Would you like to graduate under? And there was a little drop box on the website and it came up with literature or film. And I remember looking at it going, what? Aren't they the same? <laughs> then I, I looked and I thought, oh, my marks are slightly better in film. I'll do that one. <laughs> and, but it was unusual because, again, even at the, I think maybe even a bigger problem at Sydney because the university is so large and the departments really didn't talk to each other. And so you, you took these subjects here, there and everywhere, and then they kind of cobbled together and they called it film studies. But as I was going through, so as I was teaching with um, Bruce Isaacs became the director of film studies. And he, together with others, um, sort of created not a faculty, but like um, a program, let's say, that kind of put these things centrally. And I think here that that there isn't a film studies program and that, that's fine. It's actually been really productive to think outside those parameters. Um, and also in that, in, in so doing, I've kind of come a bit more to television studies as well, which I wasn't taught at all at Sydney, or at least not through the channels that came through English, art history, film. Might have been taught in MECO, the media department downstairs, but there was no real discussion between the people downstairs in the Woolly Building and the people upstairs in the Woolly Building. <laughs> media studies and English department there. I don't so think I there's more in, a bit more interdisciplinarity in Norway, and this is partly a matter of scale. I'm not but, sure that it's even that. I think I, I'm also it's not really a one for one because it's different times as well, right? Like I can't compare when right. I was going through Sydney Uni in like the mid late 2000s to now. I think that's a different thing as well. I'm, but I was not in a media department. I was really an English department doing film, which. Now, could we move on now to your publications? So people who are just coming to your work, as well as those who might be revisiting it, can (laughs) think about where they can go to find the things that you have done and will be doing. Is that okay? Ah, that was the first off. Oh, sorry. I tried to like... No, no, you controlled it very well. (laughs) I, I love those moments. And I've been a party to this, when coughs move around rooms. Oh. You know, when you're in a film theatre or a lecture theatre. Oh, right. I was thinking, oh, is that a COVID thing? A, a person coughs, and then yeah. some a long way away from them does so. It, they, it's never people coughing who are next to one another. It's, it's like permission to cough, right? Permission to cough. Or yeah, because that is quite some, like someone breaks the silence with their yeah. cough. And yeah. you know, you're like, you've been and waiting. And <laughs> then, what I do when I'm lecturing is I say, I'll wait until you've all finished coughing if you need to, and then no one coughs anymore. Oh, really? I was thinking then like that poor person who hadn't got around to it yet has to wait until the end of the lecture. Well, I've given permission. I've said, anybody wants to cough, <laughs> now's the time. Uh, but it's, it's meant as a joke. Definitely so if, you can tell us a, a bit. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's all right. I was just talking about coughing. If you could tell us a bit about where people can find the things you've done. Um, I, 
Where should I start with that, I guess? Um, so well, you could do it chronologically. Oh, I can't do that. Generically, thematically, or just whatever comes to mind, whatever you'd like people to look for or to find. Well, I guess perhaps I should start then with the, so my, the, my first monograph, mm-hmm. which is so a version, I guess, or a, a highly, uh, well, highly, uh, an edited version, uh, an updated version of what, what had been my dissertation. Mm-hmm. So that's called American Eccentric Cinema. Um, that was published with Bloomsbury in 2019. Um, and what that is, it was sort of trying to think through a, a tone and a politics of a, sort of a branch of indie cinema in, in, in light of or informed by sort of a, a sort of a neoliberal cultural moment. Um, and so I was looking at things that look like sort of a postmodern sort of aesthetic, but they felt very different. Um, and so thinking through what things like a pastiche, which I put my hand up and say I wrongly identified as parody throughout that work, um, what, what that was doing, what it could be saying, in a moment where it, it didn't seem to feel like it was doing the same things as postmodernism. So it was this dual elicitation of sort of a sincerity and an irony at the same time, trying to work out what, what was going on through people like Wes Anderson, some Charlie Kaufman, uh, Spike Jones, people like that. Um, and that was heavily informed with actually by someone I ended up working with here, a great colleague, uh, Timothy Espermelon, who writes, writes on the metamon. Um, so, so thinking about that, this, this turn to like new sincerity, if we're going to call it that, um, the quirky, these sorts of ideas. And I have a few articles or a number of articles in a similar sort of vein. Can I halt you there for a second? Yeah. Two reasons. First of all, I want to ask you more about American eccentric cinema, but also the cat has just gone a little crazy. And so <laughs> I need very quickly to intervene with him. Yeah, and I'll be back. Okay. Sorry. So we're back to taping after I've done some pussycat management with Mr. O. Sorry to interrupt there, Kim. That's all right. So, Prof, we were talking about American eccentric cinema, yeah. your book with Bloomsbury from 2019. Mm-hmm. I had a couple of things I wanted to ask you about that, and then we can go on to talk about these uh, articles that you've you've mm-hmm. published and the other work that you do. So I'm interested in the notion of eccentricity. Yeah. It's not a concept that is used very much in US public life, in my experience. In fact, it's not a concept that's used as much as it was. When I was growing up, it was used a lot, and in particular to describe British people. Yeah. So what does it mean to you? And can you tell us more? Forgetting can, the yeah. difference between pastiche and parody for the moment. No, no, let, let's leave that for, for later. Um, so that was something I, I came to because, oh, well, and I had exactly the same sort of reaction. The writing on eccentricity tended to be figures from British aristocracy. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. it's really where it was, you know, a product of being of this sort of class that you can people were eccentric in that way whereas I wanted to come at this sort of type of cinema itself I'm not I'm not talking about the the directors as being eccentrics um that's not what I mean at all I actually don't want this to be like or didn't want it to be an auteurist sort of take even though I think that there are figures that like consistently have made things in this vein it was more of a modality and what I meant by that was like so James McDowell had done wonderful work on the quirky but I was wondering what's the difference here and I think that the quirky or describing something as quirky was kind of seen as a sort of an affectation, even though that's not how his work sort of describes it. But in general, people like like something that was sort of a good thing to be. Like if someone's a bit quirky, mm-hmm. wonderful. whereas eccentricity to me seemed more something that was sort of unshakable. It was something that was it was part like a part of something that was not a, not put on. It couldn't be necessarily courted, so it was part, but it wasn't also um, strange. You know what I mean? It wasn't something that was kind of avant-garde. It wasn't something that was completely divorced from a mainstream. So, because none of the films that I was talking about, or, or the, the mode itself, um, did anything 
radical, right? They weren't breaking the things. They were just eccentric takes on things. So I was thinking of it more as a modality. And I have to say that term did not come from me. It's a term that was used um, by in Mayshark's book, uh, post-pop cinema, but just in passing. So I kind of looked at it and went, no, that seems to me like a term that I could do something with um, to describe this sort of more consistent sort of idea. And I, I was thinking about this because I don't think that the films that I was talking about, I mean, there, there, there is a certain sort of twee nature to a lot of them, but what I was trying to get at is more like the depressing side, actually, because they all seem to be about these profoundly white, I think, characters having profoundly white problems. These people who are supposed to be the sort of successful ones under a, a neoliberal formula who in these in these films they were like consistently failing and so I was wondering what's the what's the relationship between sort of this ironic mode of delivery sort of the comedic slightly comedic not not really comedic um highly stylized sort of indie film and this failure or like this depression that seems un- underneath it all. And that was this tension that I was trying to get at. Well, that's interesting. So I guess this is about the fact that the hyper notion of bourgeois individualism mm. leads to individuals feeling very unhappy. Yeah. I mean, and, and throughout all of these films, I think there was like this idea of like mm. some sort of interpersonal connection that just never never materializes, but they try for it. And I think this was the distinction between a lot of people still wanted to call it postmodern, but they seem to like be re-engaging with sort of, I want to say, like attempts at like at something beyond, trying to reignite some sort of action toward something outside, but they just never get there. So they they know that they're going to fail, but they try anyway. So, and this relates, I guess, to what you were describing a bit earlier in another context, some sort of desire for authenticity. Yeah, I think that that, I see that, yes, yeah, but I see that in, in relation to the body swap thing is quite distinct mm-hmm. in that I think that the, what the body swap, so actually my work on body swap came out of this project. I think that happens to a lot of us, right, where there's a little kernel in there and then you forget about it and it comes back and repeats and uh, reverberates in our brains for years. So I was writing on being John Malkovich and to me that read as like the anti-body swap <laughs> In that the, the the promise of the body swap, at least in the American version, is sort of some sort of pedagogical exercise of empathy, right? I will become you, and then I will understand a little bit more that you're not auxiliary to my own existence, that you have your own world and things are framed and formulated for you and by you, and I will understand more what it's like to be someone else. That's the promise, right? The If I were you. That's, but in being John Malkovich, what actually happens is they go into another body and just kind of, I guess, double down and then triple down and then everything becomes much, much, much more selfish rather than more generous. So I think with the body swap, it, it is that promise of like, well, I'm going to be able to see things from a different perspective. It's the Atticus Finch. You never know a man until you, you know. So, um, but of course, you, we don't actually get that promise fulfilled and I think this is what I mean about it being distinct in this moment because what we get to know is what it's I would get to know what it's like to be Toby Miller for a day I don't get to know what it's like to be generally another person it doesn't seem to extend beyond that one-to-one exchange um, which seems to me like this drive for authenticity I need to know what it's like to be that person in that moment not a broader understanding of beyond oneself and, and getting back to the eccentric cinema yeah. book, you mentioned that this was, I think you used the term profoundly white yeah. experience. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Well, because at the time I was thinking like, well, this is all coming from a particular sort of subset of film, American film culture. The uh, Newman book on indie also kind of points this out, right? It's, it's a largely white male or tourist vision of indie um, that were centering on, on characters of the same sort of nature. And I think that part of that is this, this thinking about how 
those who should have been, you know, the win- winners of a neoliberal sort of society were the ones that were failing. And that was the moment because they, all of their concerns were largely to do, like, largely existential. They weren't to do with, you know, where is my money going to come from? Where is my job security going to come from? They could be eccentric and quirky and cute or whatever you want to call it, precisely because they didn't have to deal with these other forms of reality, with the, like, the sort of the everyday stuff of life that, like, allows you to continue. If you're thinking about, like, a Wes Anderson film, they don't seem to have any concern. Or, like, and and the, the, the aesthetics also speak to this. Like, everything is made, constructed around this idea that it's sealed. That everything, your, your inner sort of, you can ask these questions about interpersonal connection, about, like, whether or not we're going to be depressed and what's what's beyond all of this because you don't have to worry about where your money is coming from. You don't have to worry about um, uh, other forms of systemic oppression. It, you're free to do these other things. And then, you know, be ironic and reflexive and, and sincere all at the same time about yourself. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a great explanation. Thank you. So getting back to the pastiche parody thing, you engage in some fantastic auto-critique there. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, share it with the group. Tell us. <laughs> well, actually, I, had, I was thinking about this because, um, so Tim and I have recently finished a dossier of the screen, um, which should be coming out uh, early next year, on exactly what um, what we were calling metamodern pastiche is. Right? And I think that we came to this because pastiche has been, and I think continues to be, sort of considered this secondary or like not not worthy of your notice as um, an imitative device, as opposed to something like parody, which has a critical edge, as we, we've been told, um, and has the, the, the ability to critique, to reflect, to engage with the past. Um, and so I, I had used parody fairly consistently in this book, actually. And now thinking back, what I was actually identifying was, was pastiche because it wasn't always, um, it wasn't sort of doing the critical edge things that I thought it was doing. Uh, because, yeah, so we, what we've been talking about with, with pastiche is precisely, I mean, the Richard Dyer book was our great um, sort of inspiration here. As pastiche is having a sort of very effective qualities to it. It, it, it isn't this um, necessarily this sort of postmodern, flattening it's it's not just blank parody it's his own um sort of device it has its own lineages um and its quotation isn't necessarily devoid of any of these things in spite of what um we often are told when we're told something is near pastiche for instance sorry i'm there's a cat here hello yes i'm having my thumbs licked that's quite distracting (laughs) Well, I guess there's salt on them or something. Oh, really? Okay. Tell us a bit about the forthcoming dossier that you've co-edited that's going to appear in the journal screen. Yeah. If if it's not embargoed. Oh, no, I don't think think so. (laughs) So, yes, this is something that Tim and I were were working on for for quite a while. Then we would, it was precisely to grapple with, um, you know, what, not just what pastiche is because I think Richard Dyer has done a very good job of that but how might it function now precisely in this moment where we seem to have um this desire to re-engage in sort of um in sort of I guess grander societal narratives things like you know we have climate issues of climate change that are mobilizing people a desire to reconnect with other people um some sort of uh pressing um, generational push, I guess, maybe we want to call it that, toward um, toward things that are bigger. So that whereas pastiche itself has been kind of seen as a product of postmodernism, that is a sort of a, a flattening of all of these things. It can. It, you okay? I'm sorry. He's <laughs> trying to close the computer, so I'm, oh, I'm having getting to, smaller and smaller and smaller. I'm having to. Well, he's now he's veganizing. And what does that mean? His dried food is vegan, whereas oh. his wet food is not. He's just old enough to be allowed to move on to a quasi-vegan diet. And 
he was trying to shut up our conversation, but now he suddenly got interested in his vegan dried food. So I'm sorry, I kept moving the laptop to protect um, our conversation. In any event, getting back to that, this dossier. (laughs) Yes. So um, essentially we're thinking about uh, pastiche seems to be, uh, it is something that has continued after a postmodern moment, even if this is something that um, is often sort of, I think, still misdiagnosed or deliberately misdiagnosed in when people want to elevate a certain text or a certain instance. They often just will call it, as I did, uh, parody. So we were thinking more like, what, what are its uses now? So the dossier is a collection of really thinking about uh, instances of pastiche or uses of pastiche, predominantly in television, and other forms of media. So we have a really a great chapter by um, James Abdell on uh, YouTube, uh, uh, uses of pastiche in, in particular YouTube um, phenomena. Um, so yeah, thinking about how, what are its effective resonances, political resonances? Um, yes, beyond trying to trying to sort of rescue it, I guess, from its postmodern. That's great. I remember. In the early 90s, there was debate about Madonna being happy or pastiche. Yeah. This was a big deal, yeah. Oh, yeah? And? Well, I think people felt that it was, well, it seemed as though, parody was when she was mocking a certain femininity which she was also embracing and incarnating. But why was that parody? Um, because it was deemed to be legitimate since it was drawing on her own experience and subjectivity. And pastiche, when she was borrowing or appropriating black culture and queer culture. Yeah, so I think that that's kind of part of this, right? So when we're doing one set of practices that are actually textually the same, um, we want to call it this or call it that, depending on what we think or what we deem the legitimate or illegitimate outcome to be. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's how genre works. Um, mm-hmm. So getting back to your articles, if we oh. could, which you were going to describe uh, for us, I wonder if you could, if I could switch directions back to that. I interrupted you because I wanted to learn more about your first book. That's okay. So tell us about some articles which people might be able to locate. Right. So I, I, a lot of the earlier ones were in conversation or um, d- deriving from that first sort of set of interests around whether or not I called it at the time American eccentricity. And since then, I, I've written some work, sort of critical work on the sort of um, the ways in which we formulate or canonize uh, indie, uh, and and the relationship to say New Hollywood as this other moment that uh, in time and, and talking about the relationships between um, critical formulations of what's worthy of our notice in American cinema cultures. Uh, that was something I wrote for a collection on re- revising or re- revisiting New Hollywood, the Hollywood mm-hmm. Renaissance by. Uh, Nathan Abrams and Greg Kane. And then since then, I've been thinking more about um, sort of German cinema. So I have an, I had an article in, in Screen a few years back on the series Babylon Berlin. And I was thinking there about, and this is sort of leading into this new project about uh, sort of gazes and, and the touristic nature of that series, um, particularly in what I would say is an illustration of what is a bifocal view of Weimar. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a particular Weimar expert as well, I, but I do think that that series sort of in concert with um, tourism boards actually who partly funded it, which is not unusual. I mean, with, with television that's, or any sort of uh, entertainment media, but there is a certain connection where they they're sort of playing up that sort of nightclub hedonism, Weimar hedonism thing as something that's still alive in everyday Berlin, but it's always sort of um, made sort of urgent by the presumed knowledge of the audience that Nazism is coming. Right, so this sort of tension between these two. Um, 
And I do think that it does this as a sort of what I would call then a bifocal gaze. So you have sometimes two historic periods in the same image. So that was kind of thinking through what that might be. It's inevitable that viewers are going to see this as a moment of high decadence that is to be destroyed. The dance on the volcano, that that sort of formulation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think that at least in the first season or the way that it was marketed, I don't know if if you're familiar with this, it was always these um, sort of images of sex and dancing and um, deliberately non-addicted drug use um, as squarely focused on the dance, right? (laughs) Not the volcano. and that's the way it was picked up in in sort of the tourism uh, site. So on the <clears throat> sorry, cough too. Uh, on the uh, Visit Berlin site, they they kind of link to the various cabaret um, venues, and, but they don't they don't do any of the dark tourism stuff. But that's part of it because that's also you know that's Germany's uh, sort of genre, right? Is dark dark heritage, whereas this is heritage that ghosts dark heritage. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think it's still the case that there are all these walks you can do in Vienna to re-experience the 39 steps. Okay, yeah. yeah. From the other mm-hmm. angle, that's well after the fact, before these things were thought of in terms of product placement or promotion. Rather, it's about picking up on them later. So yeah. that's in screen. Yes. Referring again to that journal. And do you find that because of your cultural background, Germany is one of the German screen production is one of the things you're attracted to, or is it is that irrelevant? I no, it's absolutely not irrelevant. I think that we are attracted to things that, in general, I mean, that speak to us in some personal way as well. I mean, I I, I need to be connected to it in some way to write about it, but um, I think because I came at that project as one of these people, and again, like. <laughs> Admitting this out loud is terrible, but I was one of those people who went to Berlin at the moment where it was, I mean, like these gentrification, the reemergence of Berlin as a screen hub where it hadn't been for a while was all coming back, right? I, I lived there, when was it? It must have been 2009 to 2011, something like that. And then you go back and it's all completely changed. It's so rapid. Uh, so I was one of those people who, you know, was absolutely part of the problem coming back and lamenting how much it had changed. Um, and so it is part of that. But it's also this sort of ability to, when you are sort of versed in a culture, even from a, a distance as I am, because I grew up in Australia to a German mother, um, but you still kind of have these moments of recognition when things, certain things happen. I mean, I remember watching, I don't know if you've seen that film, A Coffee in Berlin. It was also called Oh Boy. No. Um, I watched this with some colleagues as part of a, a PhD reading and, and, and Ewing group. And there's this moment where the guy is on, on, the, on, on the underground and two dudes in like plain clothes come and harass him for his ticket, which he doesn't have. And all of my friends were like, yeah, like like two guys who aren't dressed as like security men will come and do it. I'm like, no, 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 that, that actually is what happens. And just realizing, oh, hang on, if you don't know that, you're not going to get this other thing and everything seems really weirdly contrived. I mean, that film is very contrived, but deliberately so. No, but the moments of realism are culturally relative. Yeah, exactly. So I think it was it was that, but also like this this moment of, yeah, I'm writing about this thing that I, I know has changed. I know that I was part of that, but I mean, pick up any book on gentrification and one of the first lines are, I am part of the gentrifying class. Yes, there is this... Uh, you have to. I to confess. Yeah, I mean, but I, what what else do you do, right? You can't, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Well, the voices of those who are moved on by gentrification are rarely heard. Yeah, of course. Because they're rarely people with access to the cultural capital of the middle class. Well, that, yeah. But I think, I mean, we also have to remember that gentrification isn't just a middle class thing, even though that's where it starts, right? There's, it's It's mm. not a line from here to there. Um, but I mean, of course, this is one of the things I'm grappling with in this book, Toby, is like, how do I do this when it is like everything that I'm, I'm 
addressing textually is made with a viewer, viewer that they presume is middle class. And to have the money to go and make these things, they're made by middle class people, even and, which is where the tourism thing comes in, right, too, where you are making stories about other realities, but you're not part of that. Um, and if you are part of that, what is the likelihood that you are getting these deals through Amazon Prime or whoever else to then put these things on the screen? And also where you can always move on. I mean, that's part of the privilege. Yeah. So there's also a transience to it, yeah. Wow. Gosh. Well, okay. <laughs> we're at the end point of how the technology I'm using allows us to record. Okay. So I want to thank you very much. But before we go, two things. First of all, I want to extract a promise from you, if I may, that that you'll return to the pod in the future, perhaps when one or other, both of these two books are out. Well, that'd be lovely, Toby. And the second thing is to ask whether there's anything you'd like to add that we haven't yet addressed. Oh, I think think we could have talked for a very long time, right? That's true, yes. (laughs) would have been wonderful. Um, Especially with the cat now at bay. Oh, I think the cat just adds to the whole experience. I'm <laughs> very glad to have met the cat. Um, no, to be honest, not at, the, not at this moment. I can't actually think. It's one of those times when you're you're you've got so many thoughts that they they don't come out. I think what does Mr. Burns call it in the Sim, in the Simpsons? The block door syndrome. <laughs> well, I think because you've been focusing so much on not coughing. Oh yeah, pressing cough number three. <laughs> bursting out of your mouth (laughs) for the podcast is is odd right because it's control it's control prof wilkins that's what we need here yeah (laughs) (laughs) absolutely listen thank you so much i should say that as i mentioned earlier just en passant i was fortunate enough to meet kim in person this past Northern summer. And it was an incredible delight because she was, for one thing, the hostess with the mostest <laughs> at a, a, a big conference where she made all of us feel special. But also she provided so many brilliant ideas, concepts and thoughts for those of us who had the, the great good fortune to talk to her. But now to have this second chance to engage in a conversation with you has been really special. So. Oh, Toby, thank you so much. Can I just add, like, it was so wonderful. So Toby was our, our keynote at the next conference and um, magnificent keynote and a magnificent person to have here in Norway. So we were we were delighted. Thank you to you, Kim. I don't do any editing, but I might have to bring no, the I... and add some music to that to get rid of that part. <laughs> no, anyway. it was absolutely wonderful, Toby. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you very, very, very much. And thank you also for being uh, so supportive of me in so many ways. So let's stay in touch. And assuming that this infernal machine, this infernal gadget works, I'll send you the link to the podcast. Okay. Yeah. All the best to you and and your loved ones. And again, many, many thanks, Prof. Thank you to you. Yeah. It's so nice to see you. (laughs) It's great to see you. Bye-bye. Bye.